also of preaching this evening on Romans chapter 9 and 10. As you can see up there, we're going to kind of take a big chunk that's going to straddle two chapters. Just uh, so you know, we're picking up where we left off last week and the week before. We've been going through the book of Romans, in particular this daunting chapter 9, and we've seen a lot of difficult things. I say difficult uh, because they've been challenging for us as a church. We've talked about God's sovereignty and showing mercy to whom he wants to show mercy and not showing mercy to whom he doesn't want to show mercy to. It's been hard to talk about that and to wrestle with that, but it's been good, I think, at the same time. And so these uh, verses pick up kind of where we left off, but now it's going to sort of bring um, all that sort of abstract thinking back to the very particular concrete question that launched it all, and that is the question of Israel. Why is it that so many of God's people, the Israelites, have rejected the Messiah? It's the question that started it all, and we kind of come full circle now back around to it. I'm going to ask for you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. Like I said, we're going to start in verse 24 and carry on through chapter 10, verse 4. So if you would follow along with me as I read for this out loud, read for us out loud. God's word says this, and it's picking up mid-phrase, so it's going to sound funny, but here we go. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts in here would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, please do it. We ask and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for standing. You guys can go ahead and be seated. Uh, so one note here, and that is I usually have slides up that kind of underline different parts of the text that we're looking at. I didn't do that this week. So you're going to have to lean a lot on, guess what, 
your Bible that you've got opened. When I point out different verses, um, there won't be any Cliff's notes up on the screen. We'll just have to go straight to the source. But I think that's a good thing for one week. Um, and then I think I had a second note, but I can't remember it now. So let's just dive in. I want to start with a story about when I was in St. Louis before I was a pastor. So this was maybe 2007, 2008. I was at a church, the Kirk of the Hills was the church that I attended there. And there was a friend of mine that I was having a conversation with one Sunday during the greeting time actually at church. And this friend was somebody I was in small group with. She was a, a woman who was a, a little bit older than me. She was married, she had children. And she was sharing with me that the previous month her mom had passed away. And that had been this heartbreaking ordeal for her family. And that not only was she trying to figure out how to process her own grief, she was also needing to answer the questions of her two little girls who were asking questions about what happened? Why would God allow this to happen? Where did grandma go? What happens after you die? Things that are hard enough to answer just when everything's peachy, but especially so when you're in the midst of the stress and pain of losing a loved one. And so I'm, I'm listening to her, I'm talking with her. She's got tears streaming down her face, but as hard as all that was to hear, the next thing she said was the most heartbreaking of all. Because here's what she told me. She said, you know, when the girls ask me where grandma is now, she said, I tell them that we know that grandma was a loving woman, that she did her best to be kind to everyone in her life. She was a good person and God's gonna see that and celebrate that and welcome her to heaven because of it. Just to be clear, that is not the gospel. The gospel that we sang about on which we stand tonight is not that. And I think it was one of the first times in my life as a young Christian, remember I became a believer when I was 18. So this is only four or five years in for me of my following Jesus journey. It was one of the first times that I saw face to face how deeply entrenched works-based righteousness is even in the church. Even in a setting where this beloved friend sat under the same gospel preaching that I did week in and week out. Even in the, we shared the same small group where we talked about uh, the struggle to believe the gospel. We were in the same Bible studies where we studied Ephesians 2. It's by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. And yet in this moment of stress, what rose to the top of her heart and her mind was the belief that we earn heaven by being a good, decent, kind person. And that's what our hope is. And it was heartbreaking to hear. Now we fast forward a few years. This time, the year is 2009. This time I was a, a fresh California resident just got my California driver's license, my license plates. 
And in this particular instance, I got to see that same workspace righteousness that I witnessed in my friend years prior, but this time it was in my own heart. I had just arrived in paradise. I had moved there to be an intern at our congregation up in paradise. I hit the ground running, meeting as many people as possible, going over to people's homes to have dinner. Just I had all these ideas of how I just, I, I, my initial contract was for one year. So I was like, I gotta, I'm going hard for it, okay? And about two months in, I got this gnarly cold. I called it the California cold because it was, whew. And then I got better for like three days and I got another cold. And then I got better for like four days and I got another cold again. It was crazy. Like I was looking in the air vents to see if there was like mold in my apartment because it was just nuts how I can, was getting sick over and over and over again. But the thing that was the worst about it is because I had all these ministry plans. I had all these desires to make a good impression right off the bat. And here I was sidelined for like six weeks. And I convinced myself that the pastor I worked with and all of our elders must have thought that I was just a slacker who was faking it because who gets three colds in a row? When I finally was well enough to go out in public, I remember going to lunch with the pastor that I worked with, Tom Savage, and telling him just how awful it had been, not only because I felt bad, but just because of, ah, oh, it's so frustrating to be sidelined at the beginning of this time at the church. And he's like, oh, I know, man. I know it's been so hard. I've been praying for you. And then I went so far as to say, and I'm so frustrated at God because this isn't fair, is it? And he said, isn't fair? Tell me more. And I said, listen, I have been working as hard as possible since I got at the church. I am spending more time in private prayer with God than I ever have. I have been like, you know, 40 of 40 on my daily devotionals. I have gone even as an introvert out of my way to introduce myself to all my apartment neighbors and invite them to church. I am pouring myself out completely and this is how God repays me? And Tom said, oh, so you do good things for God and, and he rewards you and pays you back in kind? That's how it works? I said, oh. And even though I, I sort of talk about this in a joking way, I think seeing my own heart in that moment and seeing how even as a young minister, I was falling back on this idea of, if I do enough good things, God will give me good. It was ugly to see. Now, I know for some of you guys, you might be saying, Josh, those are two wildly different examples. <laughs> in one of them, you're just frustrated because you were sick, man. And in the other one, you've got a woman that's saying like, the way I get to heaven is by doing good things. I get it, you're right. They are not identical. There's some differences between those examples, but the reason why I put them together to share with you today is because I want you to see that the logic is the same. Do y'all realize that? Like the logic in my heart when I was so frustrated being sick was that, okay, if I really work hard for the church, God will reward me in kind. 
If I really give my all in evangelism, God will make sure that there's nothing that hinders that, like getting sick for six weeks. And if you follow that logic far enough, if you follow the thread all the way back to where it leads, what you wind up with is something very similar to grandma will be welcome to heaven because she was a good, decent person and God will reward her for that. Not identical, but the logic is very similar. And I think what it means is that what we have in the church setting that we're in, guys, is two types of this sort of self-salvation, this work righteousness. The, the lesser, and I hesitate to say that because it's dangerous and deadly across the board. The lesser is, is maybe those of us who are following Jesus and when we ask him to show us our heart in ways that we can grow, he's gonna continually be showing us ways in which that works righteousness has crept in somewhere, that it's reared its ugly head. And, and we're gonna see it when we're in moments of extreme stress or we're in moments where maybe we have a disagreement with a friend that we wanna boast in our own righteousness, so to speak. And it will be in those moments that we're able to repent and believe the gospel once again and grow in faith. So that's one way that we're gonna look at this tonight. But I would be remiss if I didn't say that there might be some of you here that have gone to church your whole life that have been a good person, that have done your best to obey the rules, to be a decent human being, and you've never ever thought that that's not what your righteousness is. You've always considered that question of like, when God says, why should I let you into heaven? You'll be like, well, you know what? I wasn't as bad as this person over here. I did my best to be generous, to be kind, to be loving. Maybe there's some of you in here that's thought like that, and that is not the gospel. And perhaps today, reading through this text will be the first time where you've realized that the gospel is not building your own righteousness to trust in, but instead it is embracing Jesus by faith, believing that he is the son of God and he is the only savior of sinners. So we're asking God through this text to shine a light on our works righteousness, whether as something for us as believers to repent of or whether maybe for us as people for the first time realizing that we don't trust in ourselves, we trust in Jesus. Wherever you might be, I'm asking that the Lord would open your eyes and ears to hear what he's got to say in this text. Now you're probably thinking, Josh, what are you talking about, Josh, in this text? We had Old Testament quotations. We had the talk about the Jew and Gentile divide. Where's works righteousness in here? Oh, it's in here. It is the theme that is running through all of what we read. I know it was a long passage, but I hope you were able to pay attention and see a little bit of what I'm talking about. If not, let me refresh your memory. So in verse 31, we've got this phrase. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. They did not pursue it by faith, but they pursued it as if it was based on works. Now let's come down to chapter 10, verse two. 
Paul says, for I bear them, he's talking about Israel here, for I bear Israel witness that they have a zeal for God. They love God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. We are told all throughout the book of Romans that the righteousness of God is the one that he gives to you to be simply accepted and believed by faith. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it, work for it, or deserve it. He simply gives it to you on the basis of faith. But what it takes to accept that is to have empty hands and empty arms that have let go of all of our accomplishments, all of our good works to boast in, so that we're able to actually embrace what he's given. If you're a person that is hanging on for dear life to all your good works and accomplishments, you can't embrace the gift of God's righteousness embraced by faith alone. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying, my beloved kinsmen, my fellow Israelites, fellow brothers and sisters that are Jews, they don't realize that law-keeping, religious observance, their heritage, their good works, their being kind and decent people, that doesn't win you God's favor. Only belief in Christ does. And the most tragic thing in all of history is that Jesus reveals himself to be the fulfillment of the law that our last verse says here, but they are so busy hanging on to their good works and their law keeping and their own righteousness that they can't embrace him. Just to reiterate what Paul said in 10.3, he said, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, they sought to establish their own. They wanted to establish their own righteousness of said of that was, that was being offered by Jesus. That is why I say that this theme of the dangers of leaning on your own righteousness for salvation runs all throughout this section. But it's not the only thing that's in here. And so what I wanna do is really say that self-salvation, that theme of your own righteousness, that's gonna be sort of the main point of all of this. But we're gonna take a small little detour now into some of these Old Testament quotations kind of go off uh, a little bit and explore that. And then we're gonna come back to this idea of leaning on our own righteousness and we're gonna end there. So does that make any sense? I should have put this up on a slide this week. I don't know what I was thinking, but uh, we've just talked about the main point. We're going on a detour, but we're coming back, all right? So the detour, oh man, you know, the apostle Paul, if he could hear me say that would be really ticked off probably. Be like, this isn't a detour. What are you talking about, man? Yeah, it's, it's probably true. Because these quotes are pretty rich. The first one comes from the book of Hosea. And actually, Hannah, I know it's not in there, but you could probably throw up on the screen just this portion. Uh, it's probably the very first slide that you had for the scripture reading. So the book of Hosea is a fascinating book. We preached on it years ago here at church, but that's long enough ago that I doubt either anybody remembers or uh, you weren't here when that happened. But it is 
let's just say it's provocative. Some of you guys giggled, so that means you might know a little bit about the story already. So Hosea is a prophet, and he is, why anyone wants to be a prophet is beyond me. Like modern day people, they're like, yeah, I'm a prophet. I'm like, you don't want to be a prophet. (laughs) One of the reasons is Hosea. Hosea is a man who is told by God that he is going to pursue and and show his love to and marry a woman of ill repute, uh, a.k.a. a a prostitute, most likely. Most commentators think his wife, Gomer, was a prostitute. And he was told by God to love her, and not just once, twice, but rather as many times as she was unfaithful to him, as she walked out on him, as she betrayed him, God says... Show her mercy, show her grace, show her love. Because in doing that, Hosea was a symbol of God's love for his people Israel and how he continually showed them grace and mercy even when they were unfaithful. So that's kind of the the broad scope of what this book is all about. And so the quote that we have here in Romans 9 is taken from that. Now, you might be thinking that when you read something like, to quote from our text, her who was not beloved, I will call beloved, that that's speaking about this woman, Gomer, who was a prostitute, but it's not. What this section of the scripture is talking about is Hosea and Gomer's children. You guys remember that? Those of y'all that have read the book, very first chapter, God says to them that when they have children, they have three children together that are named in the book, that God is going to name them. The first child's name is Jezreel, which refers to this geographical location of valley where judgment was going to come upon Israel. The second child's name is no mercy, because God says, I will not have mercy on my people. And the final child's name is this, not my people. Because God says, they don't belong to me. They're not mine. Those are the kids' names. God says, name your your, your sons and daughters this. And I joked about this up in paradise this morning. Because, listen, I know it's all the rage to find biblical names that are also unique that no one else has. Do not name your child no mercy. I do not want to be baptizing little no mercy up here in front of church for a lot of reasons, but the main one is because it would mean that you had read like the beginning of Hosea and not finished the story because their name didn't stay that the whole time. In fact, that's what we're reading that Paul quotes in Romans 9. There was a day in their future where God changed their names and said, I'm gonna address you in a new way. And even though I initially said this was your name, now, I'm going to call you something different. And that's what our text is talking about. Let me read it for you again. It's Romans 9, verse 25. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. Now, why is Paul quoting this here? Well, it has to do with this message of the gospel that we're saved by grace alone through faith. 
Because what Paul is saying is he's like, guess what, guys? This story of Hosea and Gomer and their oddly named children, it wasn't just about them. It was actually this metaphor, this symbol for God's love for his people, Israel. And pretty much everybody that would have heard Paul said that would be like, yeah, we know that, of course, duh. But then he says, wait a second, there's more. This isn't just about God's covenant love for his people. It's also an anticipation of the day when the literal, not my people, a.k.a. the Gentiles, you and me, the people that are foreigners, the people that are outsiders, the people that were pagans and idolaters and spoke different languages, not Israel. This was an anticipation of the day when those people, God would look at and say, you are no longer not my people, but you are sons of the living God. And how? Because faith is the key to relationship with God. Think about it. If it's, all, if it's faith that enters you into God's covenant relationship, it means that it doesn't matter what country you're from or what language you speak or what skin color you have or who your parents are. It's purely by faith, belief, and trust in Jesus Christ that makes you part of that's my people. But there's a flip side to this. The flip side is if it's faith that makes not my people, my people, then if you take away faith, if you don't lean on faith, then my people becomes what? Not my people. This is where the other quotations are taking us. Isaiah says this, this is verse 27. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, what does that mean? There are a lot of Israelites, yet only a remnant, that is a small number of them, will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And again, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, that is a few, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. That is desolate, done, gone. And why? Why is it that Isaiah would be able to anticipate that God's people, that only a remnant of them would truly embrace the covenant from the heart? It's the last verse from Isaiah. As it is written, this is verse 33. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And what we we're told before is that Israel has stumbled over that stumbling stone. The reason there's just a remnant is because if faith is the key to inviting in people of all tribes and tongues and nations, it doesn't matter about your, your law keeping or religious observance or nationality or language, it's purely by faith in the Son of God. Yet, if you're not willing to have faith in the Son of God, if you prefer instead to have faith and trust in yourself, then you go from the status of my people to the status of not my people. This self-salvation, this leaning on your own righteousness, guys, it is not a little tiny thing to shrug at. It is dangerous and catastrophic. And it's the reason that the story of Israel, that's Paul is, is telling us in this section of the scripture, hurts so bad for him. 
told you we were going to take the detour. Now we're coming back to our landing spot. This story of Israel refusing to embrace the covenant by faith. It's one that we could just walk out of here and say, ah, that's interesting. That's a nice little history lesson. That helps me understand a little bit more about redemption history. That would be an awful mistake because the reason that I started with the examples that I did is for y'all to see that this stumbling block, this, this, this ability for us to trip over Jesus because he asked of us to have purely just faith in him and not in ourselves, that's something that every human being struggles with. And it's something that even the church struggles with greatly. In fact, maybe the church struggles with most. We could say that, okay, listen, <laughs> it's the folks that don't love Jesus, don't know him, they're the ones that get all hung up on needing to, to lay aside their accomplishments and just humbly come to Jesus. Amen, you're right, it's true. But I would say it is just as prevalent in the church to, to be in a situation where you're talking to a brother and sister in Christ and whether it be because of a stressful situation or because of a hardship, all of a sudden that self-salvation pops up out of nowhere. And people begin talking as if we establish our own righteousness and, and don't lean on the righteousness of Jesus. I, I can't tell you how many times I have come, uh, what's the best way to say this? I've come across a curriculum or I've witnessed VBSs that tell our kids all about how it's beautiful to be patient and kind and loving and generous and say nothing about trusting in Jesus. What are we doing? How is that Christianity? I mean, we could even go far as to say it is the opposite of Christianity. I even said this morning up at Ridge, I told the folks that on my way up the Skyway, I was just thinking, if we took a poll just of evangelical Christians all throughout the country and said, what is the most dangerous threat to the gospel in our churches these days? Well, I'm pretty sure I know what the main answers would be. I think you'd have a group of people that was saying politics, either this politician or that politician, they're a threat to freedom of religion, okay? Or there'd be people saying, it's those TV preachers and how greedy they are. They're a threat to the gospel. Fine. Or probably parents saying, it's that Disney channel corrupting the minds of our youth. Probably. And yet the answer that probably wouldn't show up on a survey, but definitely should, is legalism, moralism. The... the the, the thing that we're presenting to people that makes them think that being a Christian is all about being good enough and being decent enough and therefore earning God's love. That is just as much a danger to the gospel as anything else you could name. 
And sadly, it's the thing that sometimes lives and thrives right under our nose in the church. So I come back to something I started with, and that is, where are we today hearing this message, hearing this passage? I don't know. Some of you guys could be in a position of saying, like, whoa, I'm seeing parts of my heart and my life and my thinking that are touched by this work salvation. I want to repent of that. I want to be cleansed of that. Amen. Some of you guys might be in a place of like, I've never heard this before. I didn't know being a Christian was anything other than just trying your best. If that's you, today's the day where you can finally let go of all your efforts to be good enough, better enough. Is that even correct English? I don't know. Decent enough? And say, my hope is simply to embrace Jesus by faith through grace. That's all I have. That when I show up at the gates of heaven and God says, why should I let you in? You say, I, you shouldn't let me in, God. But I plead the blood of Jesus. I claim him and his righteousness, not my own. You know, there's a verse at the end of our passage today that I absolutely love. In verse 2, Paul is speaking about the Israelites. He says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Do you see what he's saying in that? The Israelites weren't, weren't just nominal believers. They were passionate about God. They loved the Lord. They loved their identity as the people of Israel. To put it in modern day terms, if they're singing praise and worship songs, they've got their hands raised, they're swaying back and forth. They're passionately, zealously excited about God. And yet what this is telling us is that that is meaningless without knowing the true righteousness that comes by faith. Our church could be the most amazing church on a surface level the world has ever seen. We could have music that melts your face off. <laughs> Pastor Brian could be like the biggest number one podcast in all of the world. Our kids ministry could like make your kids behave and sit down at dinner time and go to bed when they're supposed to. We could have mercy ministry that makes Chico just fall in love with this small church. And yet, if we were doing all that because we thought that it was helping us establish our own righteousness, it would be zeal without knowledge and we would be lost. Please, Lord, don't let us go there. And it starts not with the church corporately, but with you individually to go home tonight or this afternoon and say, Jesus, what am I trusting in? Am I trusting in myself or am I trusting in the finished work of Christ alone? The second question that we ask new members at our church, it's my favorite, it's very wordy, but it has a phrase that I've repeated over and over again to people. It says, do you promise to receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? I hope all of us are able to say with a clear conscience in the days to come, yes, amen. Let's pray.
Lord, teach us not to trust in ourselves, but to trust only in you. It's in the name of Christ we ask. Amen.